if we were a, a sports team, we would have to get one of those very specially designed patches in honor of our anniversary because this is episode number five of the Minor League Baseball podcast. MILB.com is a show before the show. My name is Tyler Vaughn, Jake Siner in New York City. Hi, Jake. Hey, Tyler. What's going on? Number five. Look at this. Dude, you really get a patch after five years or something? Like you need to at least have a, a zero at the end of your, your Yeah, anniversary. that's probably true. It's probably not many teams to celebrate five years. That's a very low bar to clear if you were a team that's like, hey, we've been around five years. Everybody jump on board. I mean, five episodes is already more than I thought we'd get, so I guess <laughs> we should be celebrating. Four more, four more than we figured we'd get. I thought Brendan, after the first one, would be like, man, you guys are annoying. Especially, especially Tyler. Um, so welcome in. It's episode number five, the show before the show. We're talking all things minor league baseball, uh, and it's we're like almost to the doorstep of the first full month of the season. So we've gotten a ton of promotions already. We've gotten uh, a ton of prospects moving up from level to level, not just to the big leagues. We've already uh, found, you know, the weird and wild stuff that has gone on in, in minor league baseball. I saw a game the other day, I believe in the Southern league in which uh, a team had 19 hits and all of them were singles. So we've got crooked numbers columns coming up soon from Benjamin Hill and Ashley Marshall. It's, it's already that fun time of year. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, who was ahead that 19 hit game. I can forget now. You know, I sent the email to Ben the other day, and I totally forgot already, so I'm very well prepared to already talk about my one filing. for. I get so excited. When I get to file things for uh, for crooked numbers columns, I'm like, yes, I found something that seems clever. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a rarity for me. What's going on at the uh, at the MILB offices, Jake Siner? Not so much. we got a pretty quiet day here. Not a whole lot going on for day game actions. I'm getting caught up on... Uh getting ready to run the, the stock watch feature for this week on, uh, I guess we can just roll right into three strikes for strike number one. Uh, away. Writing about uh, the Brewer shortstop Orlando Arceus playing in double-A Biloxi. It's been a pretty good year for the uh, the Brewer system so far in general. A lot of guys playing well. Arcia probably tops that list. He uh, just got edged out by Dan Vogelback, I know, for the Southern League Player of the Week this past week. Um, he's got through 18 games with Biloxi. He's hitting 386 with a 1,000 OPS. Uh, those who know Arcia know his calling card really is more his defense. He's um, people just can't say enough good things about his his defense. It's short. I profiled him in a preseason story where it kind of ranked some of the best defensive shortstops in the minor leagues. And I had Lindor ahead of him, but based on the things I was hearing, it sounds like the gap between uh, Orlando Arcia and Francisco Lindor defensively is not all that big. Arcia kind of checks all the boxes you want. He's got great range, a great arm. His instincts are really good. Um, I talked to a handful of Florida State League coaches about his defense. Uh, the guys who saw him last year, and they used words like, quote, superb and outstanding. I had one guy claim he was already major league ready defensively. Um, so the question with Arcia is really just a matter of how good is the bat going to be and, and what's his ultimate role going to be is pretty much dependent on the bat. Um, the glove is going to play at the major league level and play really well, but if the bat's, you know, if he's nothing more than a 240 hitter, that's not necessarily an everyday guy, not, not, not a great everyday guy, certainly. Um, but he's hitting this year. Uh, the thing he's always done really well is he's made a lot of contact. Um, he has kind of an interesting swing. I watched a, a lot of video for, for the story that's going up tomorrow. Um, his hands are, are kind of loud. He's got a lot of movement. Um, one thing I noticed is early in the count, he tends to start his hands much higher, and he gets a lot more movement, I imagine, just to, in an attempt to, to create bat speed. When he gets behind in the count, he actually adjusts his approach uh, pretty notably. His hands drop down. There's a little less movement. There's clearly more focus on making contact. Um, and really, based on what I saw, there's no pitch that he can't at least get the, the barrel on the ball on. Um, not all the contacts have been loud or anything, but um, certainly he's been getting his share of base hits, getting his share of doubles. He took a big step forward last year in the Florida State League. 
uh, knocking 29 doubles. Um, so he's an interesting guy to follow. He's, if he can keep the batting average up at like a 280, 290 clip in, in the major leagues, and that's sort of where he's been the last year and change now in the, in the minors, you're, you're looking at really an impactful guy. It's, you know, maybe put up similar numbers to what we saw from, from Jose Reyes with probably just a, a little bit less speed, less stolen bases, uh, but maybe better defense. If he doesn't get to that, I think a, a pretty interesting comp, at least as far as what the numbers and the results are going to look like, might be a guy like Alcides Escobar, who, uh, who Brewers fans certainly remember and has, has put a nice uh, nice little major league career together. Um, so Orsi is an interesting guy and one that's that's worth watching just because you know he's, he's going to be a major leaguer and probably a, a pretty decent one just based on the defense. Um, and it's all just a matter of how much that, that offense and the hit tool and the strength can kind of play, uh, play at the plate. Well, and the interesting thing, too, is the Brewers obviously know that they can challenge him at advanced levels for his age. He was a teenager in the Florida State League last year. Now he's in double A. He's hitting 386 through 18 games, an OPS of 1,000 even, and he's 20. So that, to me, suggests the, the thing that an organization thinks about a prospect, you can tell about how ready they are to challenge him at advanced levels, and that's really impressive. Yeah, when I talked to, to Joe Irall, the manager of the Brevard County team, one of the things he actually said was, quote, He's one of those guys, if something crazy happens, he'd go to the big leagues and fill in right now. One of our sayings here is, does he pass the eye test when he gets called up? Does he do all the things you expect a major league guy to do, making plays? He's a guy who will pass the eye test over there in major league camp. He'll definitely impress some people this spring. That was me talking to, to Iralt uh, in, uh, I think it was in February. Um, so he's a guy who the makeup is, is absolutely there. They absolutely believe that he can handle whatever challenge they're going to throw at him, that he's... Uh, not just going to be a good defender at short, but a real leader at short, um, something he's already doing. He's just 20 and in double A. Um, yeah, the, definitely a bright future uh, for RC and, and sort of the kind of things that you look for when you look for guys who might discover talents that they haven't necessarily shown in the minor leagues. Uh, that work ethic and that makeup is something that can allow him to do that. So I, I think definitely a guy uh, to be buying into, uh, just if you're a Brewers fan, to be excited about. And if you're a fantasy owner, too, I think the uh, the speed and the the base running is going to make him an interesting follow, too. And that leads us into strike two, which is uh, Noah Syndergaard, Mets prospect. Uh, Twitter troll uh, put down extraordinary. Battler. Yes, yes. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no opponent he's not ready to take on at this point. But on the field, had, uh, had himself quite a, a day yesterday. I know, Tyler, you said you tuned in and got to watch some of the game on MILB TV. Yeah, and he looked – it's kind of difficult to tell sometimes. Las Vegas just has a one-camera feed. But even from that, from not a, a very close look at center guard, you could tell just how on he looked throughout the entirety of that start. He gave some fantastic quotes to Ashley Marshall uh, last night, one of our outstanding writers, in which he said, quote, I had excellent fastball command, probably the best I've had in my entire life. This was maybe the best performance I've had in my entire life. I've never had a complete game, so that was definitely a highlight. Seven two-hit innings, nine strikeouts, picked up his first career complete game shutout uh, in Las Vegas, beat the Albuquerque Isotopes 8 nothing. That's impressive enough. It's almost more impressive is he did it with another team's top prospect on the other side, John Gray, the Colorado Rockies. And Gray has really struggled out of the gate this season. But for Syndergaard, I mean, he certainly did not let the matchup affect him at all. Uh, and he not only was that good on the mound, but he also had a couple of hits at the plate, too. It's really just one of those wire-to-wire outstanding performances. And when you see somebody like Syndergaard, who was battling an illness, uh, was feeling kind of under the weather over the last week or so, and then had the issue where he went after a troll on on Twitter, uh, you know, which obviously the Mets were upset about. They talked to him about it. I don't think there's a person in the world who sees an athlete 
own a troll on Twitter and feels bad for the troll. It's maybe not the most professional thing to do, so the Mets addressed it, but, you know, whatever. So he comes back from that, maybe a bit of a discipline thing, and then he was sick uh, and didn't really feel that great for a few days and had been pushed back start-wise. And then he goes out, throws his first complete game shutout. It was only seven innings, but he was unbelievable yesterday and hit 98 miles an hour through the first few innings. We've seen that he was hitting 99 and 100 in the start before that. He, if, if he's not in City Field within the next couple of weeks, it's probably going to be the next couple of weeks after that. That's how close he is right now. Yeah, I know. It's been a, a work in progress for him at AAA. And the numbers last year, the ERA wasn't pretty, but I know the, the underlying numbers, the strikeouts and the walks were a little more encouraging. And, and pitching in, in Las Vegas is a tough task for any pitcher. Uh, one thing I do know he was working on last year when I talked to, I talked to Kevin Pilecki about this late in the season last year. Pilecki, the catcher, just got called up from AAA to the majors. Was, was They wanted to work with Syndergaard on his pace and sort of um, keeping a, a quicker uh, quicker delivery to the, to the plate and hoping that would improve his command a little bit. Certainly sounds like, you know, he mentioned to Ashley Marshall that he was fine-tuning his mechanics. I imagine that was probably a little bit of a part of that was the pacing of that mechanics and, and getting to the plate a little bit quicker. I think in, in doing that, uh, you know, that might be helping his command and, and certainly his his command has taken a step forward from where it was last year with the stuff he has. There's no reason that, that somebody like Dylan G should be pitching in the rotation in New York ahead of him. It's amazing how much talent the Mets have both at the major league level, obviously with what Matt Harvey's done already this season. And even despite some of the guys they've lost to injury, you look at Noah Syndergaard and the fact that he's on the doorstep, the Mets have been one of the most exciting stories in baseball already this season. And they're only going to probably get more so as the season goes along. See the, uh, I, did, I, did, I just had this brought to my attention this like last week. I didn't even see this, but apparently over the winter, Wally Backman told some of the, the New York media, he actually thought Steven Matz was a better pitcher really? than, than uh, Syndergaard. <laughs> Which that I, I is, sort of, uh, I see the argument. I can see how you could see yeah. stuff from the left side and think, yeah, that's that's. A, I, I'll still take Syndergaard for track record, but that's that's sort of absurd that the Mets could just have a guy not come out of nowhere, but certainly uh, you know not somebody they invested first round money in recently i think Matt's was, was 2011 or 2010 draft pick or something it's been a little while since he's been in the system this guy is... like that just pop up and i mean you know jake Degrom, kind of a similar story right yeah, it's probably been a while since a lot of people have said this, but if I'm a New York Mets fan right now, I'm very excited for the next five years. So Stephen Matz was a second-round pick, but that was all the way back in 2009. Uh, yeah. He was out of high school, but he has really, really come on. And he's a New York native, which is kind of cool. He's from East Setauket, New York, so that's always a good story when you can get a, a local kid who makes the climb. Uh, and speaking of somewhat local kids, I guess, who have made the climb, a Western kid, maybe he's not local to where he's playing right now, but uh, Texas Rangers prospect Joey Gallo, the guy of power upon power upon power is finally back and has gotten his season started for the double a Frisco Rough Riders and Gallo who had surgery to actually remove a bone in his left heel. He had a, a problem in his foot that was causing him some pain and discomfort. Doctor said, you know, we can either kind of move it around or we can remove it. He had the bone removed since then. You kind of wonder, well, how is a guy like that going to jump back in? He's only played three games. Hasn't homered yet, which seems like a rarity for Joey Gallo, but a 364 average of 417 on base percentage, a 636 slugging percentage through his first 11 ABs. He struck out three times. He's walked once, so a strikeout per game, but he took a free pass already. He's also stolen a base. He's doubled once. He's tripled once out of his four hits, and he's driven home two runs. Joey Gallo is probably going to make the climb to triple a round rock for a substantial part of this season but if i'm a rangers fan i'm very encouraged by the fact that coming back from this injury from this surgery it doesn't seem like it's affecting him right out of the gate which is something that i would i would worry about if i was observing that especially for a guy who generates the kind of power that he does from the lower half of his body 
Yeah, the uh, the stolen base is a good sign. I think that that's you know certainly if you're going to pull any one of those stats and speed think, oh, must demon be, must Joey Gallo. Yeah, seven right. seven stolen bases last year, fifteen the year before. He's it's not, not a, bad. A, not a clogger. He's been efficient too. He's twenty nine for thirty three for his career in stolen base attempts, which is that's that's pretty good. That's pretty impressive, especially for a guy who's you know six five and two twenty or whatever Joey Gallo is. Picking his spots well, but yeah, we'll be interested to see just how uh, how he's moving at third base, and, and if third base is definitely going to be a, a spot he can stick uh, long term. I think a lot of his uh, his future movements might be tied to things happening with the major league team. I also think it's going to be tied just to proving that he can make a little more contact. I think there was such a big buzz about the way that he dominated at Myrtle Beach last year, um, really cutting down on the strikeouts and almost as many walks as strikeouts. And the, but after the promotion to Double A Frisco, he really kind of reverted back to. The Gallo that that we saw in the lower minors, where everybody saw the the, the prodigious power, but you kind of have questions about how much he's going to be able to utilize that. Um, certainly, the strikeouts didn't stop him from slugging like crazy at Frisco. He still had 21 home runs last year in 68 games. Um, that's really going to be the determinant between you know is he a guy who has this one crazy tool and gets to the majors because of that tool, but it's just kind of a guy who's there and, and is notable for that, or is he going to be a guy that really makes an impact? Is really going to be that's tied to that that hit tool. If he can can sharpen up on the the strikeouts, he's already got three in, in three games. So looking more more or less like the the same old Joey Gallo so far. Not that he can pull a whole lot from from three games worth of info, but uh, interested to see how. I mean, he made such a dramatic improvement jumping from A ball to Class A last year. If he can make that those same kind of strides this year at Double A, just cutting down on the strikeouts. Uh, that's that's a scary player if that does happen. He one of the things his dad told me in the, the the interview that I did for the story on him and Chris Bryant is that Joey has the ability, the mental makeup, and the physical ability to put in the work to tackle any issue, strikeouts included. He said a lot of people are worried about these strikeouts. I know my son. I know that he has the ability to work on that and improve it. And, I mean, it showed last year in the first half of last season, still a, a pretty decent amount of strikeouts. He struck out 64 times in 58 games with Myrtle Beach. Then the numbers really jumped when he went to the Texas League, 115 strikeouts in 68 games. But that's obviously been a point of emphasis for him. And like I said, if I'm a Rangers fan, I'm pretty excited about the fact that he's been – really showing so far that he's not suffering any ill effects from that, that surgery. So that's uh, where we stand with some of the other top prospects who have uh, been coming back in or have already been making some pretty big impacts to start this 2015 season. And coming up next, we're going to have a chat with a guy who has seen a lot of those prospects come through his system, through his organization, and through his specific club, the AA hitting coach of the Tennessee Smokies in the Chicago Cubs organization, Desi Wilson, joins us. <laughs> All right, our guest this week on the MILB.com Show Before the Show podcast is the hitting coach at AA Tennessee in the Cubs system, Desi Wilson. Desi, we appreciate you joining us. How's everything going in Tennessee? Uh, everything is good. Just finished up here with uh, batting practice. Yeah, been uh, been a pretty good year for a lot of the hitters you have there in AA. Two guys who off to really hot starts are, are Dan Vogelback, first baseman DH, and Kyle Schwarber at catcher. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about Vogelback. He's a guy who's he's always hit for some power. And he's a 291 career hitter. Um, always pretty good walking strikeout numbers, but he's off to an incredible start this year. He's hitting four fourteens, three home runs. He's got more than twice as many walks as strikeouts through 16 games. Uh, I just wanted to ask generally what you think he's doing well, what's leading to all these really good results for him, if there's anything in particular you think he's improved uh, just in the early going this year. I think but Vogue, I think uh, we talked in spring training, and uh, he was talking to me about how he got to a slow start the past couple of years, and 
And uh, he said, you know, he's going to take what the pitcher gives him, you know, and that's taking his pitch the other way, making sure he takes his walks. And, you know, the first, say, 10, 15 games of the season, you know, he's been uh, following his uh, protocol from spring training. Um, the kid has an idea what he wants to do at the plate. Um, he has a great routine. He goes about his business the right way. He studies the pitchers. He does his homework. So it's, it's no surprise to me that Vogel brought himself up to his hot start. Yeah, the uh, one thing when I talked to, to Dan a little bit last year was he said last year really prioritized using the whole field a little bit more. He thought he was a little too pull heavy when he was in Class A and thought he really improved that right. advance last year. What, how, where is he at that stage in his development right now? Is he a guy who is, is at the point where he's already using the whole field pretty proficiently for double-A hitter, or is that something that's still a work in progress? No, he's, he's using the whole field right now. Uh, he had a home run. They got the Knights straight away center, and uh, he had a couple of doubles to the offensive field. I would say the majority of his hits this season have been to center field and left center so far, and he's pulled maybe a handful of pitches, maybe four or five pitches, um, two for home runs and a couple for, for doubles. But for, for the most part, majority of his hits have been to the big part of the field. Desi, let's talk a little bit about another big power prospect that uh, is coming to the organization just last year. Kyle Schwarber provides really a dynamic bat from the catching position. And I know that I think a lot of people were kind of surprised at just how well he took off last year with the way that he broke into pro ball. But what does he do that makes him so successful? We saw what he did in college with Indiana last year and the preceding few years. But his approach seems to be really advanced. What makes him such a pure hitter? Well, he's a great hitter. He has a nice for the strike zone. Um, he'll take his walks. Um, he doesn't try to do too much. You know, sometimes he'll, you know, he'll, uh, he'll get too big and he'll make the adjustment that next pitch. And we'll, and we'll sit and talk about his at-bats the next day and he'll make the adjustment the next game. I mean, Kyle was, uh, was a advanced hitter because I think he, he goes about the right way just like uh, Vogelbach. Um, uh, those two guys are similar to me. They'll take their walks, um, and at the same time, if a pitcher makes a mistake, they capitalize it. They don't sell that pitch off. They, they, you know, they put it in play, they drive it, and they drive it. Oh, an account or late in the count. With him at the plate, I mean, so many people talked about him uh, and how his bat was going to carry him and kind of questioned, I think, what he would be like defensively as a catcher. But how much has impressed you to know that he's able to work on improving as a professional catcher but still be able to hit that successfully? Because a lot of guys can't handle that, especially working defensively. Sometimes you get a little bit too caught up in that and you fall off with the bat. But how impressive has that been? Kyle's been doing it. I mean, him and Cuz and during the off season and in spring training, and like he's been getting all this uh, defensive work, and it hasn't bothered him one bit. You know, which you know it's rare because as catchers, with all the defensive work, you know, usually their legs go and and then their swing go, and then they start to struggle as hitters. But Kyle is mentally tough and strong, and so I really think that's not going to be the issue with him uh, catching this year because he the kid is a, a kick and hit, and his defense is improved tremendously from the videos I've seen last year when he was catching in uh, Indiana. Thanks to uh, Cuz, as well, our catching coordinator, and, and Borg, Borzello, during spring training. They work with them just about every day. They can barely work for, for hours. So all that stuff is, is paying off. I imagine for a guy who not only he's making his, his first look at double-A at, at higher-level pitching, but he's transitioning to catching full-time for the first time really in his career, 
just not even the physical, but the, the mental grind of trying to improve on so many things right. at the same time. What's just even mm-hmm. from like a, a time management standpoint and everything, how does how do you go about helping a guy who's in that kind of position? What what is it about Kyle that's allowed him to just handle the, the mental side of that so well uh, this quickly? Well, I think I think I mean coming from his program, his parents, you know, it, it comes from his mom and dad, and I think the school he went to, you know, he's 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 a strong kid mentally, you know, and he wants it. You know, he wants to be a catcher. That's the thing, and that doesn't surprise me. You know, the kid is a is a, is a work hard. He's he's there early at the ballpark, uh, working on his craft every day. So, I think uh, Kyle is going to be one of those guys trying to play as long as he keeps on developing and, and catching. Good things are going to turn out because Kyle wants to catch. You know, and uh, he's going to prove his critics wrong. Desi, you've had so much talent come through that system over the last couple of seasons, and of course we've seen two guys now graduate to the big leagues in Chris Bryant and Addison Russell, and I want to ask you about Chris Bryant, uh, because we've heard so much about his swing and the way he was taught growing up, and kind of this Ted Williams approach of swinging hard and putting the ball in the air. Is it different for you to coach a guy who's been brought up with a different school of thought than so much of the, the modern school of what's taught to kids of you know hitting the top of the ball and hitting it on the ground? Was that a challenge at all for you to kind of work with a guy who's developed differently no uh it's just not a challenge uh, i think it wasn't hard at all you know that's that's uh for me i just stood back and just trying to help him out with his approach you know you're not gonna you know there's a couple of things i told chris last year it's just about the, you know making sure he doesn't lean over being so tall six five but his swing plays at any level in this game you know the thing is you just don't want to change anything it's just more than anything it just changes his approach because it's the swing it is what it is as a hitting coach you gotta be willing to work with different types of swings you know and for me you know it wasn't difficult at all yeah you mentioned the the approach with him one i had an interesting conversation with the cubs farm director jaron madison in the off season and he talked a little bit about how he thought Bryant was actually maybe a little bit too passive early on with AA last year, and, and that was something that he thought improved as the year went on. I just wanted to ask just as, as sort of the boots on the ground for the Cubs there, kind of what you saw with his approach, what was what it was that, that did improve, um, if anything. Obviously, the numbers are really good all year, but what, what did change with his plate approach? With uh, Ryan's in scoring position, he tended to, you know, swing early in the count on off-speed pitch and get himself out early in the count. And so we just sat and talked and watched video and t- Tell them about how, you know, just be a little more selective when you get runners in scoring position, you know, because players tend to, you know, want to get that guy in from third base. And and that's where I try to tell him you have, you have a base open and, you know, maybe he wants to pitch around you. And so you want to be selective and make sure you're swinging at your pitch, regardless of a guy on, a guy in someone in scoring position. So we worked on that in the early work you know, hitting off the machine sliders and stuff. And so you see, you saw the progress he's made from the beginning of the season until the time he got promoted to, to Iowa. And, you know, he just, he just took off from there. Desi, your guy has been in this system for a while now, and things have changed so much over the last few years with how much talent has come through. What's that been like for you guys as coaches, as members mm-hmm. of this staff, to go from a franchise that was kind of searching for an identity to now be you know, a top-rated team in a lot of publications in terms of your minor league talent and seeing all these guys come through over the last few seasons? 
the you know the front office and, and the scouts for that. You know the trades they made and then drafting these players in the draft. You know they're making those decisions of players who we bring into this farm system, and so um, I'm thankful and grateful for the, for the guys that are you know making the trades and getting a draft. And you know you get those players in the draft, and you know it's, it's, I think it's for me it's, it's easier because <laughs> these guys are you know. <laughs> They're, they're coachable. They're, they're hungry. They're well they're talented. They're, they're, they're they pull for their teammates. They go about their business the right way. So it makes my job a lot easier. I think it makes the manager job easier. The pitching coach, the coordinators, everybody along you know the farm system. Desi, one last player I wanted to ask about was there's a, an interesting conversation uh, you and I had about Javier Baez uh, back in 2013 mm-hmm. that stuck with me. Um, we, we were talking, right. you just gotten him back uh, under your, you had coached him in 2012 and then you got promoted and he was right. still in high A. Uh, and you talked about just the way that you had seen him improve from when you coached him in 2012 to 2013. I think people will be really interested in hearing that and hearing just the way that his work ethic and things have sort of propelled him through the minors and how he has struggled before. Uh, I just wonder if you can sort of re- recall right. that conversation and just, Talk about just maybe if that the improvements you saw him make if they inspire confidence that he is going to figure things out at the major league level at some point. Right when he got promoted from Daytona to to Tennessee, um, you know Mario Duncan told me you know the drills that he was doing in uh, down in Daytona and uh, when he got here, um, you can see that his first at bat he hit a home run and he he went. 0 for 20 the next 20 at bats, and I just you know more than anything I just wanted to watch Javi hit because he just got promoted to the next level, and then we sat down in Jackson about remembering keeping the game simple and not trying to do too much because you know you're just piece of the puzzle. We have you know nine other players you just got promoted. Just do your part and try to understand you know keep your same routine and. He would go into cages every day. We hit off the machine every day, slider machine, just about every day. But that's where he had the biggest problem is not is recognizing off speed. And you know, we were talk hitting, you know, every inning uh, about his approach, what to look for, um, try to slow the game down, um, modify your leg kick, because all these things he, he was doing prior to getting to Tennessee, because. He had a tough time, you know, as his walk rate and strikeout rate were kind of high. And then he, he made those adjustments, I, I would say, in August. And I remember, and uh, he had a, in that bat, he had a like a nine-pitch walk. And he was so ecstatic about that walk because he, he laid off some certain pitches. He fouled off some tough pitches. And he came up to me, and he was like, that's probably my best at bat of the year. And I was like, you know what? It is probably your best at bat because you battled back from 0-2 and you grinded out that at bat and you took a walk. I said, those are things, Javi, that we need to see on a consistent basis. And so he started to get it. And, and as you know, 2012, that, that year, I mean, he uh, he hit like 20 home runs in about 54 games. I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised at the fact that he – the, the, the approach he took, you know, the pitches he, were laying, he was laying off. The leg kick was, wasn't as high. Was, you know, strikes on discipline, it was, it was there. So I think it's still there right now. You know, unfortunately, you know, he went to some things with his sister. And, 
you know, big league camp, and he's just, you know, serious talent. You just got to, you know, remind him of the little things that he did in the past and not trying to complicate everything with Harvey because he's you got to keep things simple with him. And because uh, the talent is there, there's no far, you know, it's there. So I just think that as coaches, we see things in Javi that we're trying to correct, but I think it's one thing at a time. You know, it takes it's baby steps. You know, it's a process that every hitter goes through minor league system. And he knows what he has to do. And I think, you know, Harper and Posey, they have a plan for him in, in Iowa, and I think things are going to, you know, turn around for him. I think he's going to make those adjustments. It's obvious he's a talented ball player, and he's willing to make some changes as well. Desi Wilson is the hitting coach at AA Tennessee in the Cubs system. Desi, always a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate you coming and joining us on the show today. Thanks, Desi. No problem, buddy. Big thanks to Desi Wilson of the Tennessee Smokies for joining us as they get set for a home game coming up tonight in the Southern League. There's been so much talent that has gone through Tennessee over the last couple of years, and there's only going to be more uh, coming up very soon. And uh, it's they are a team that transitions players to the AAA Pacific Coast League, and guys who hit in the Pacific Coast League love it. Chris Bryant, Addison Russell, and those guys are uh, very much part of that as well. But uh, one of the things that has come about in the Pacific Coast League is a, a idea to try to temper offense. And our good friend Ashley Marshall wrote a story about this for MILB.com back on the 16th. And I thought it was interesting in that it's a trend that is continuing to grow in the PCL, and that is the trend of the humidor. And that's a subject I wanted to tackle for uh, – this week's edition of Things I Read. Ash put together a good story about how the Salt Lake Bees have installed a humidor this season. They are the fifth Pacific Coast League team to do so, and they put it in at Smith's Ballpark. Uh, it's actually kind of an interesting story about what exactly their humidor is. It was an unused refrigerator from Energy Solutions Arena. The Bees are owned by Gail Miller, who is the widow of Larry H. Miller, who also purchased the Utah Jazz, as Ash writes in this story. So the Jazz basically handed off the spare refrigerator to the Bees, and the Bees are now using it as a humidor to keep baseballs to their exact specifications of what they're supposed to be like. The the idea is, well, it's not an idea. I mean, the fact is, at high elevations, with thinner air because of the altitude, with less oxygen, baseballs dry out, they shrink a little bit, and they basically turn into kind of the baseball version of golf balls comparatively with baseballs that are thrown at sea level. So what the humidor does is it keeps baseballs – at the state in which they're made and in which they're shipped. Uh, in Salt Lake, it's an 8x8x10 eight eight refrigeration box. It's a custom-installed walk-in refrigerator, basically. Humidity will be kept at 50% there. The temperature inside is 68 degrees. And it's interesting to me that this is something that has turned into a prominent thing in the PCL. Colorado Springs installed one. They were the first team to do so in the minor leagues. Uh, they installed one a few seasons ago. Albuquerque followed, then Reno, then El Paso, and their ballpark opened last year and now Salt Lake. I think it's great that minor league teams are doing this. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, Ashley has some of the numbers there. It's clearly it's having an effect. I know you're, you live out in Colorado or a Rockies guy, so you've seen it at, at Coors Field too and the effect it can have at the, the major league level. I think it's it's definitely a, a good thing to get the those AAA teams just a, a run environment that's maybe a little more uh, reasonable compared to just the expectations you'd have for baseball. Um, there are some parks where I don't really know what you can do with. I don't know if you can really fix what's you know Las Vegas and just the crazy run environment there. 
um, because it's, it's so dry and then elevation and things. Um, yeah, definitely think it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I didn't realize it was so simple to build a humidor, just to take a fridge and sort of carve it out into to what you want it to be was kind of my biggest takeaway from the story. Yeah, that part I thought was really interesting because it's not yeah. really something that you would think you could just grab a leftover fridge from the jazz and throw it in somewhere and turn <laughs> it into a humidor. But those, I mean, those ballparks, Colorado Springs is the highest elevation professional stadium, I believe, in the country. It's 6,010 feet above sea level. Then it's Albuquerque, which is just a few hours drive south of Colorado Springs at 5,312 feet. Reno at 5,505 feet. Salt Lake is at 4,226 feet. And El Paso checks in fifth on that list at 3,740. So it's definitely an issue that I think because of the success that we saw with when it was implemented in Colorado Springs, now it's started to spread. And I like that minor league teams are fine with looking at that and saying, all right, maybe this is a, a thing that we can apply here to try to improve our situation. And really just to give our pitchers a chance. I mean, that's what I think what it comes down to for a lot of these teams. You send guys to AAA, and it's like they're playing a 90s video game with the way balls get hit out of the yard there. <laughs> yep, yeah, definitely in, in favor of it. I'm sure that'll help shorten the games there too, is not having yeah, good point. You know, 10-8 slugfest. <laughs> good point. So let's talk a little bit about another topic that's come up a lot in baseball in recent weeks, and that is maybe due to some unfortunate circumstances, but it's due a lot to the fact that I think it's a conversation that has simmered under the surface for a while now, and that's the discussion of the designated hitter in the National League. This pertains a lot to minor league baseball because pitchers do not hit in the minors until double A. There's only two levels in which pitchers hit at all. And even when that's the case, they only do it when it's National League teams versus National League teams in terms of their affiliation. So this conversation is starting to get louder and louder and louder. And Jake, I want to know some of your thoughts on, on the DH in the National League. Yeah, I think we are we are at at, uh, at odds here because I'm, I'm pretty pro-designated hitter. I think the Argument against the designated hitter pretty much starts and ends. If you Google Tommy Hansen uh, bat <laughs> once, there was I was actually I was in Atlanta when this happened. He would, had a sacrifice bunt and he bat flipped the the bunt. So that's the <laughs> argument I have. Now I gotta look it up. That's the argument I have for the DH. The argument against the DH is everything else. I I don't find it that entertaining. Occasionally it's it's entertaining when a, a pitcher hits and you have somebody like Bartolo Colon and you get some funny photos and things. I don't think that's necessarily worth it. Um, I'll miss, you know, the impact that guys like Carlos Zambrano or, or some of the others that, that can really hit have just on the game when they are not an automatic out in the, the nine spot. But I think that's going to be minimal. I don't really have a problem with saying, you know, you pitchers, you specialize in pitching. You're not going to be very good at hitting. Don't don't bother. I think I'd rather just see you know somebody else. I'd rather see uh, someone you know like a Dan Vogelback who maybe can't uh, can't cut it at first base. Maybe not Vogelback, Vogelback has a chance, but somebody like that be able to to sneak into a lineup and play and more opportunities for guys like that who could could be pretty special hitters even if they can't play defense. Uh, I'd rather see that than just pitchers run out there and sack bunt and move the move station to station and. Small ball is, uh, I, I appreciate some of it, but I, I'd rather just see you guys hitting away. You know, I am uh, a National League guy, I mean, by birth and, and grew up watching double switches and watching 
the the ball that the National League, I guess, played in kind of a different era in the 90s. Obviously, everybody somewhat played a different era of baseball, but especially what we see now where it is a lot more strategically oriented and differently minded than the American League. So I am pro pitchers hitting, but I am pro pitchers hitting in a perfect world, and we don't live in that perfect world. So I'm very realistic about what it means to have the designated hitter in the National League. And with that being said, I think it's coming. Do I want it that way as a, a National League fan? And do all of the people that I know here want it that way no not at all I think people really love the way the National League ball is played but pitchers like I said do not hit until double a when they're in the minor leagues they don't hit in college a lot of them don't hit in high school so pitchers aren't being taught the way to be as professional hitters and in that What's the point of having them hit at the major league level? There are very few fun guys to watch hit. I mean, some guys can actually swing the bat. I mean, even just here, watching games in the city of Denver, a couple of Rocky starters who can actually swing it pretty well, Jordan Lyles and Tyler Matzik, they're somewhat fun to watch hit. But for every Jordan Lyles and Tyler Matzik that you have, you have a guy like Byung-Hyun Kim, who I always remember, would jump and swing <laughs> at the same time. So I, I understand that the reason why it's not going to be a world where every pitcher hits in both leagues is because it's systematically ingrained in baseball now that pitchers don't hit at basically every level. They hit very rarely in the minor leagues, uh, and when they do hit in the major leagues, it's most of the time not that pretty to watch. I think more so even than that is the fact that the DH position prolongs careers. I mean, look at a guy like Edgar Martinez. Edgar mm -hmm. Martinez played a very substantial portion as one of the premier hitters in the game of baseball when he only had to be a hitter. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that position can prolong careers, it can make guys a lot more money. The union loves it. If the union loves a designated hitter, they don't want to give up those high paying jobs. It's never going to go away. And if Rob Manfred is committed to having unified rules across the board in each league, then the DH is going to come to the National League. It's not going to go the other way. So do I like it? No. But am I pragmatic about it? Yeah. Plus, you know, if you're somebody who lives here and you look at a team like the Rockies, don't put Willene Rosario out there defensively. Just let him hit. Why not? So it yeah. seems like, you know, it's a way to stick another bat in there who can't do anything else. I just understand you have some people who might be better at a thing and some people who are clearly worse at a thing, talking pitchers and just guys who are DH only. I don't know why you wouldn't prefer to watch the guys who are clearly good at a thing do that thing that's being designated hitters hit as opposed to pitchers who are, you know, some of them are as good as, as you or me, basically, up there. Nobody, Although, to nobody be fair. It's funny to see you and me. <laughs> Although, to be fair, it would be really entertaining watching one of the two of us try to hit major league pitching. <laughs> Not entertaining for like, a, oh, man, they're really good sort of way, but like entertaining is in, I think that guy's arms are going to fly off of his body the next time he's swimming. But that, that's, that's entertaining <laughs> once. It's not entertaining on a nightly basis. It's nobody, entertaining it's once, but it's like, I feel so sorry for him. Watch. Oh, did you see, did you see the uh, – I hadn't seen this before, so this, I think this was an older story, but the story about how the Phillies actually blew yes. uh, the National League coming – the DH coming in the National League back in 1980. Yes, so it was up to a vote. Yeah, yeah I, got, I got the story right here. So it was, it was uh, the, the team president, Bill Giles, at the time he was going, and he had direction from the owner of the Phillies, Rudy Carpenter, to vote for the DH because the Phillies had two guys who kind of fit in that role, Greg Lazinski and Keith Moreland. And so Giles went to the meeting, then at the meeting found out that actually this proposal was to introduce the DH a year from now. And Giles wasn't sure what Carpenter wanted done, and this was obviously pre-cell phone and everything. Carpenter was out on a fishing trip, so Giles decided, okay, I'm going to vote against the DH right now, and the, the Phillies and the – I don't know why the Pirates needed to just leave yeah, the Phillies and do whatever. That seems the very Pirates interesting said to me they too. would vote whoever the Phillies voted, and those were the two swing votes that decided whether the DH was coming to the National League or not. 
Um, so, so Giles said, well, we'll vote against it for now and figured next year he'd have a chance to vote again, and it just hasn't been on the table since. Which is interesting. I mean, you would have figured that this would have come up at some point over the right. last 35 years, and it right. hasn't. But that's one of those weird little footnotes in baseball that that's the reason why. I mean, you look at the universal rules in every other sport. Like I think we said a couple episodes ago, it's not like in, in, in football, you know, an extra point is worth two points in the AFC, and it's worth one point in the NFC or something like right. that. So it's kind of strange that you have a sport that has two leagues playing under the same rule book except for that. Yeah, the only, thing I, the only thing I always did was, as long as we keep them in separate leagues, I actually always wanted to, to do it the opposite way as far as which park has which. So when a National League team is hosting an AL team, I'd like to see the DH there, just, just so fans get a chance to see something different. I'm not sure other fans would really enjoy that, but that was always something I kind of wanted to see with interleague play. That is a pretty cool idea. Yeah. I just remember the World Series here in 2007, and the big debate was where are David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez going to play in the field simultaneously. And everybody thought that was the big key to the Rockies getting back into that series, and that did not work out so well, as you would imagine. I would say, who wants, who wants to watch a baseball game where Manny Ramirez or David Ortiz <laughs> have to sit on the bench? See, I think it's so entertaining when Manny's playing on the field. Well, well, okay, but not, not <laughs> the best product possible. That's true. All right, we're in agreement on that. I think, you know, if pitchers were hitting all the way through, we see these guys are athletes. They've been athletes their entire life, and the vast majority of them have the skill set to do it at the major league level. They just haven't done it for so long. I think that's why they're mostly terrible. But I, I, you know, I understand. It's probably coming. Way to ruin an era of baseball fans, American League people. You like only cheese on your pizza. I was going to say, your your opinion is totally invalid at this point. Benjamin Hill is a man with opinions who are not invalid. You like that segue? That's, that, that is a good segue. He'll, that. he'll appreciate that. <laughs> Benjamin Hill is going to join us to talk a little minor league promotions coming up next. Getting into the meat of the minor league baseball promotional schedule as we hit uh, almost the first full month of the season coming up in May. And our good pal Benjamin Hill from Ben's Biz blog and at Ben's Biz on Twitter and a minor league road trip near you joins us from our palatial New York offices next to Jake Siner. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing fantastic, actually. Thank you. Good. That's a good way to start it on a positive note. Uh, we had a promo preview launch this morning authored by one Benjamin Hill of MILB.com, and a lot of good stuff coming up this week. Uh, I am very partial. There's Star Wars Nights. Obviously, Star Wars Nights a big theme for everybody. I'm very partial to the jerseys, though. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals have rolled out for this week, coming up on May 1st. Tell us about what's going on this week in the promo preview. Yeah, well, I mean, to start with what you just mentioned, the, the Naturals, um, you know, a lot of teams are doing theme jerseys, as we probably all know. But the Naturals are doing one uh, in honor of their mascot, Strike, who was a baseball-loving Sasquatch who wandered out of the woods and became their mascot. And the the theme jersey they're doing on his birthday, and I don't really know how you determine the birthday of a baseball-loving Sasquatch. I'm not really sure. What's it's like the DNA books. testing of some kind? Yeah, they probably went real deep to determine <laughs> that it is, in fact, in early May. But uh, they're doing this jersey that says NWA, standing not for the rap group, but for Northwest Arkansas. And you can see Strike's eyes through the NWA, like looking out at you, the fan, or whoever you may be looking at the jersey. And it's really distinct, and there's been so many themed jerseys, but not too many of them touch specifically on the mascot or are that well-designed. So I definitely think that's uh, one of many highlights. Yeah, you know, we we touched on the Star Wars thing, and there was, there was one tidbit in here. You mentioned that Mississippi has a Star Wars night coming up. 
and this is the first time Mississippi is going to do a Star Wars night with the permission of Lucas Films. Do have teams done many Star Wars? Almost every team, it feels like, has done a Star Wars night or something similar at this point. Do teams usually get Lucasfilm's permission, and what does that give them the right to do that they maybe have done without the Lucasfilm sort of sign-off, without, without George Lucas's uh, uh, beard and signature saying, you can, you can go ahead. <laughs> well, it's that ties in, the, the permission ties in mostly to the theme jerseys and apparel and anything a team might want to sell in conjunction with the night. Uh, you could do a Star Wars night ostensibly you know, with no official approval if you were not making money off it selling product. But if you're going to be selling product, you need permission. And it's actually pretty simple. Um, Lucasfilm, and I guess maybe now it's Disney. I'm not sure how, how it all worked out. But the arrangement that has been made is they want to see everything. They want to see all the theme jerseys. But they grant permission very easily with the caveat, which I don't think I've ever said that word out loud. Nicely done. That all the uh, that the jerseys have to go to charity. So when that's why um, not just with the Star Wars nights, but in general, so many of the theme jersey nights are auctioned off to benefit a charity. Obviously, that's you know, minor league teams like to do things with charity anyway. But that way, they can benefit by using an established brand or icons and get permission for it. And it's kind of a win-win situation, and that brand, you know, gets even more exposure, and the charity benefits, and it's it's win-win. So to get that permission from Lucasfilms or whoever it may be, you uh, basically have to say, "Here's where the money's going," and prove that it's not going into their own pockets. There's a lot else going on this week. Uh, Seiko DeMaio and I for the Bowling Green Hot Rods, Pensacola Blue Wahoos will pay tribute to the 90s kid uh, for some 1990s promotions. But a lot of those things, I mean, Star Wars Night, all that kind of stuff, that's like a, a timeless MILB promotion. But there are also some things that we've seen, especially over the last, you know, five years or so. Teams jump on board now in this, like, instant Twitter age that we live in with maybe controversies or things that pop up in popular culture. Instantly. I mean, something will happen, and a team will announce a promotion that night or the next day. And we've seen a lot of that in recent years. I remember a couple of years ago, the Lake Elsinore Storm did a thing about Charlie Sheen, uh, where they did Shinko de Mayo, where they had uh, fake tiger blood cocktails and whatever. Remember when we were all obsessed with Charlie Sheen for like six minutes? Uh, but those teams announce these things, and sometimes they'll do it over the offseason, and they get a little... I don't want to say stale, but by the time the actual promotion comes around during the season, you almost forget that the controversy which spawned the idea even happened. Ben had a really great story from the 16th of April of this year when the Brevard County Manatees jumped onto a a, a controversy, a a budding issue in the mainstream media. And uh, Ben, tell us a little bit about that story and, and what has come out of it. Well, this was when I was on my road trip in Florida uh, last week, two weeks ago. And the day I visited the Brevard County Manatees, they just happened to announce a promo tied into the Britt McHenry scandal, which is already a little bit in the past. But, you know, it blew up when it happened, when she and was caught for those, on. Yeah, for those who don't remember, she was caught on, so ESPN sideline reporter caught on surveillance tape berating a parking lot attendant. Uh, not a good look, shall we say, but continue. Yeah, so, you know, that it was everyone's talking about it because it did open up a lot of you know, points to ponder about, uh, you know, bullying and class entitlement and also legitimately being angry at a towing company and all these different things. So the Manatees said, hey, let's have some fun with this. And because McHenry went to a nearby high school, she went to Satellite High School, which 
I don't know Florida geography, but I guess that's very close to Brevard County and where the Manatees play. They said, hey, she's local. Maybe she'll be home, you know, just kind of uh, hanging out during her week-long suspension. Let's invite her to the ballpark, especially let's invite her to Education Day, you know, when a whole bunch of kids are in attendance for a day game. And let's uh, have her give a speech saying what she's learned and on the importance of anti-bullying. And tied in with that, they said she can be the field side reporter for the week that she's suspended. And, uh, of course, they never heard anything from McHenry. But being there the next day after they announced it, it was surreal because they had Little League night. You know, the Manatees staff is running around just doing typical game day stuff. But in the meantime, especially uh, Kyle Smith, the general manager, who was kind of my point of contact that evening, he's ducking, he's ducking out to quiet areas to answer calls from all over national media, um, including TMZ picked up the story of all, of all places. And it's, it's very strange when you have a Florida State League team, you know, lucky to draw maybe 2,000 on a, general, on a, on a good night on a, on a weekday, uh, becoming a point of national interest for something so silly, a promotion like that but it really does work as a way for teams to get in the public eye, whether or not they sell tickets. And this is certainly a debate in the industry is, uh, you know, very much open to debate, but I think teams just like hearing their names said all across the country, because it's tough when you're a minor league team to get that kind of publicity. Yeah. And no, we see this with, I mean, Britt McHenry happened two weeks ago or something and the season was already started. So they're able to jump on that pretty much right away. But we've seen teams jumping on things that happen in the off season and planning it for for long in the future. Maybe after some of these events have like fallen out of the news cycle. I know that happened with the Deflate Gate. You said there was a team that has a Deflate Gate thing. How how does that work? Whenever a team decides they want to hop on a, a story from you know not in the baseball season and then bring it back, how well does that usually go over? And what's the process like for that? Yeah, I mean it it is funny. The the promotion Jake just mentioned was Myrtle Beach Pelicans who jumped off the who jumped on the Patriots uh the Flategate scandal in January and said, Okay, we're gonna tie it into our, you know, prostate cancer awareness night, you know, balls. And um <laughs> I guess that's not the pro well, we won't get into anatomy right now. But they tied, you know, in that irreverent way, they tied it into a good cause and announced all sorts of really creative things, including you know, 11 out of tw- each 12 fans at the gates getting a properly inflated ball and one out of every 12 would not be properly inflated. And, you know, the press release was like 800 words long. They came up with a lot of great stuff. But the awkwardness, the awkward element of that is you announced that in January, it goes viral. It's ha, 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 look at what this team's doing. And then in April, you have to kind of remind people, like, eh, this is what we're doing. And um, I think teams are willing to to make that risk and. Honestly, I don't think they're going to get that many complaints either if they don't really blow it out as much as the press release might have promised. I'm not saying that was the case with the Pelicans because I'm not really sure exactly what they did. Um, but I'm definitely aware of some cases where teams are like, ah, oh, we're going to do this and this and this. And then when it gets to the day in question, it might not really happen like that. But the fact of the matter is they, they got their name out there. It's, it is interesting how, you know, sometimes you get to the promo and you do kind of have to remind people what happened. We have such a short attention span as a society. I mean, I know Akron recently did a thing about Brian Williams. I would imagine the vast majority of people have forgot, like, oh, yeah, Brian Williams got suspended for telling maybe fabricated stories about things. So that's kind of tough. Uh, one thing, though, that doesn't you know need any explanation a lot of teams have jumped on board celebrating Cinco de Mayo and I mentioned a few minutes ago uh Bowling Green is going to do a Cinco de Mayo promo this week uh which seems like it's got a lot of fun stuff and it's kind of cool because teams have started to embrace that and having so many Latin players and all that kind of stuff it's interesting to see teams starting to 
I guess, push out a little bit more of those types of theme nights. But tell us what's going on in Bowling Green for Cinco de Mayo. Well, Bowling Green definitely had the best one I saw. I think all Cinco de Mayo promotions, just tied in with how Americans celebrate it, is kind of cheesy, you know, in terms of it's not really a deep dive into Mexican history. Right. Just kind of a good excuse to uh, give a, a Hispanic, a Latin Spanish flair to the ball game and um, sell limeritas for two dollars. Yeah, and, and sell limeritas for two dollars. Um, one thing the Hot Rods are doing is that fans entering the stadium get to choose between a team logo sombrero or a T-shirt that says Los Hot Rods. Which, which we've actually seen a lot of teams, not just in baseball, have done that. In the NBA, they've got uh, Latin Heritage Nights where you know, you'll see Los Lakers or Los Suns or whatever it is. So a lot of teams have done this in recent years. Yeah, so the Los Hot Rods t-shirt, and I typed it into Google Translate, and it turns out that Los Hot Rods means the Hot Rods. Oh! I get so, it. I get it now. So oh, okay, that, now it all makes sense. It's Spanish. And <laughs> another really great thing... Uh, that that the Hot Rods are doing uh, as part of Cinco de Mayo is they happen to have a guy in the front office named Kevin Worm. Like Worm, W-O-R-M. I give him my sympathies if he's listening and he's over it. But the girl with the last name Worm could not have been easy. Anyway, now it's all paying off because here he is working for a team staging a Cinco de Mayo promotion. So they're going to replace their usual uh, mascot dash in which the mascot runs across the outfield between innings while kids chase him across the field. And they're going to have chase the worm instead, you know, a reference to, to, to tequila and the bottle and the worm at the, at the bottom of the bottle. So they're going to do chase the worm just by having this guy named Kevin worm run across the field as kids trail after him. And uh, those are the sort of things, you know, most people won't even notice it when it's happening or being like, what? But if you're paying attention, those are the kind of funny little absurd elements that teams maybe to amuse themselves more than anything. But it's it's those sort of things that, that make it still fun for me to cover this stuff. Those really goofy little side things going on. He is Benjamin Hill. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ben's Biz. You can follow him on Instagram as well at the Ben's Biz. Was Ben's Biz already taken on Instagram? So you had to go with the Ben's Biz. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Ben's Biz on Instagram has never posted anything and what? The avatar is just a, a dollar bill dollar dollar bills y'all maybe they're trying to ex- he's trying to extort you he posted exactly. a picture of money because he was like pony up benjamin hill yeah well you know if you're trying to make money by doing that you're gonna go after the niche minor league baseball writers first. <laughs> go give him a follow on twitter it is the the- ben's biz on instagram but i'm gonna change it to los ben's biz <laughs> cinco de mayo just for cinco de mayo and then switch it back on the 6th of may ben thanks man Hey, thank you. As always, our good pal Benjamin Hill with all the latest and greatest information on minor league promotions for this coming week and always. I thought that was really interesting just hearing about. You kind of don't think about that when a team announces a promotion about like, oh, Brian Williams, liar, liar, pants on fire night in January or February, and then by the time the season gets here, you're like, what do we know about Brian Williams? What is that all about? <laughs> I'm sure Got Brian Williams is thrilled to still <laughs> yeah. minds over that. Brian Williams knows that he's still sticking in the consciousness of yep. people because of minor league promotions. Yep. So big thanks, as always, to Ben, and uh, we're going to wrap things up here on episode number five of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. As always, you can uh, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Give us a, uh, a subscription over there. Let us know what you think of the show. You can also get 
in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. Jake's on Twitter at Jake underscore Signer, and I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. And, of course, you can follow MILB at MILB as well. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook and wherever else your social networking proclivities may lead you. And, uh, you know, we're finally, this is like we're past the early season. Oh, well, this is fun. This is the way this team's starting. This is the way. Now we're getting down to the actual in-season bulk of the schedule, and it's, this is such a fun time of year. Yeah, I don't think we can call it the dog days quite yet. Yeah, not quite yet. We're, we're just now getting into, like, the first full groove, the first real grind. We're shaking off the rust. We got the, the swings are finally coming together. This is the time of season when minor leaguers start using hashtags on Twitter like rise and grind, grind show, can't stop, won't stop, all that, all those fun MILB cliches. <laughs> I, I, Jake. I've never been more thankful I don't have to ride buses than when I'm manning the middle of Twitter account and following all the players talking about their seven, eight-hour bus rides. It is something. Let me tell you how fun those minor league bus rides are, <laughs> especially the ones. There's some good stuff on minoring and Twitter this week. Go check it out on the on the Mill Perspective blog because there are some really good. There was a bus fire, uh, a bus driver who got injured, and they had to replace him with a different bus driver. Yeah, there's some boy, really good boy, bus Bruce stories. Zuban down in Greenville. Yeah, I took a selfie, selfie of, uh, in front of a burning bus. <laughs> That's fun. That's always fun. I've been on one of those buses that broke down in the middle of rural Virginia at 4 in the morning. Oh, it's, a, it's an experience, let me tell you. Jake, enjoy the week. Enjoy the weekend, man. Yeah, yeah, you too, Tyler. Take care. We will talk to you guys for episode number six next week. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll talk to you then.